You're listening to Unscripted with Alex, a podcast that empowers young families to make choices that are best for them and their children. Welcome, Tracy. Thank you for joining me today on Unscripted with Alex. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to the chat. So today you're going to be sharing your story with us and a bit about how trauma and loss and grief, it all can impact the body, not just uh, mentally and emotionally, but also physiologically and how your experience, I suppose, has shaped you as a naturopath and the approach that you take towards um, treating and helping other people heal and your overall approach to medicine. Obviously, in life, we go through things, life events. Mm. I would have to say you've gone through too many that you shouldn't have had to go through. Nobody should go through what you've been through. Your story's a big one with lots of big major events that have happened. So today we're just going to do a bit of, we're going to work our way through some of these stories, but also how you've managed to uh, or how you're working through healing yourself and how you can work with other people to do a similar thing, I suppose. Yes, yeah. So we're going to start off from the beginning <laughs> where we'll talk a bit about your story as a young girl going through gymnastics and what that has led to. Mm, yeah. So uh, I was a gymnast and um, that was my <clears throat> sort of first quarter of my life. And... Um, how I began was I went to the class along with my older sister and I was meant to be sitting on the sidelines just watching and I was three years of age and they literally just could not stop me. I just wanted to join in. So that was how I started and I just continued to progress and became very good at what I did. And um, I was winning all my state championships uh, as one of the youngest in the in the um year group and so it wasn't long before I was representing the state and um, I was invited into the WA Institute of Sport uh, Gymnastics program. It was probably about the age of year four that I represented the state and it was year six that I went to WACE and so things really shifted and changed as soon as um, things got that serious. Um, we were training for the 1992 Olympics. So uh, training was really tough and um, it was very physically arduous, but it was also mentally and emotionally tough. Any elite athlete knows the sort of the the barriers that you need to push through to become very good at what you do. Um, so I, I guess I, I, on reflection, I can see where I was starting to struggle. Um, but because the way things were set up, um, parents weren't allowed to watch. As we became really close to the 92 Olympics, um, it was probably 1991 that parents were removed from watching us do gymnastics or train. So we were waking up in the morning, um, training before school, and then we'd go to school all day and then we'd come home, um, go to gym and train, and then we'd come home about 8 o'clock at night. So we were away from our parents for more than 12 hours a day. And you're very young at this age. Yes, yes. I think the biggest issue that I see on reflection was that there was no parental support, really. Like, they didn't really know what was going on. There was no continuity. There was no um, updates, really, about what was, what was happening and, um, in the gym. So it was quite an abusive environment. Um, you know, we were always criticised about our weight. We, we needed to have a very strict um, weight um, range. Um, anything we did always could be better. Um, and for me personally, I felt like I just wasn't heard as, a, as an individual. There was no negotiation about how your training was going to look like well at least that's how it felt to me 
um, you were told what to do and if you didn't do what you were told, you were disciplined. What do you mean by disciplined? Um, well, you were asked to, depending on the level of um, you not agreeing with what was being said or you not following the rules, you might be asked to leave the gymnasium and stand outside um, or be sent to the locker room and sit there until the end of that session um, or you'd be told to go and do 100 sit-ups or um, climb the rope or, you know, some sort of physical um, punishment. We would have punishment around um, if we'd put on too much weight, you might have to run around the uh, a gymnastics um, sports stadium for an hour with weights on. Oh, that must be so damaging for a young girl who's already so, like, easily influenced. You're so impressionable at that time just to mess with your mind like that. Yeah, yeah. So it was all part and parcel of being a gymnast. That's that's kind of what it was at that at elite level. So um, I was started to really struggle. But um, as I was saying, my parents didn't really see what was going on because they couldn't see me train Um, and there was no communication. There was very little communication and updates about what was going on. So you mean from the school to the parents are not really telling what's going on in the gym? Yes, yeah, the teachers, um, the trainers weren't really communicating closely enough, I don't think, especially because um, the, the parents weren't able to view us training. And what was the reason for the not allowing the parents to view? Because it was disruptive, apparently. I'm pretty sure even the younger kids' parents weren't allowed to watch, but um, I do recall, um, you know, I was 14 years of age and... You really need that support from your parents, and none of us, none of us had that. That in my in my training group that was training for the um, '92 Olympics. So yeah, so that was a, a really really tough time. Just need, needing to push through far greater than what um, I mentally and physically probably should have been doing. Um, we weren't given time to rest. Um, there wasn't sufficient rest and I now know how imperative that resting, there's a lot of integration that comes in when you rest. Um, so um, so when we led up to the Olympics, um, you know, we were extremely exhausted and um, unfortunately this is where things get even more complicated in my story was we had to be a certain weight um, to be in the selection team, to be selected in the training squad and as part of the final Olympic team. So weight and skin fold, like fat measurement, was was part of the waist selection. The WA Institute of Sport um, Gymnastics, you know, we had to have certain weight in that Um, influence whether you're part of the state team but also um, for the Olympic selection we had to be under 40 millimeters of fat which is um, which is very very slim and so what happened was leading up to um, going to the Australian Institute of Sport was where we went to do our um, final selection for the olympics because we did uh, competitions as selections and our parents we weren't allowed to we're only allowed to speak to our parents once a week so they were further removed from us once a week like no phone call conversations no phone call Woo. okay so we were allowed to speak to our parents once a week because apparently that would be too disruptive if we were to speak to them more regularly and so that lack of support really threw me and my, um, my weight went up and it went up um, one, two millimetres of fat. We're talking very small amounts and that was enough for um, the selection team to say, sorry, you're not allowed in the Olympic training, the final competition. My gosh. My career was um, just 
in the hands of other people. It had nothing to do with how good I was, had nothing to do whether I came first, second, third or fourth in, in that final selection competition. I was apparently too fat. That was that, over, done. That was that, over. And I reduced my um, fat measurement to below 40 centimetres. So those people that have never had a skin fold test, it's measured over about seven to eight places in your body and then they add it all up. So you might be two millimetres of fat here, you might be three millimetres of fat there, five millimetres here, um, and then they add it all up and it had to be below 40. My gosh. (laughs) So you would have been starving most of the time, not resting and recovering. Yeah, food was, um, it was a struggle for everyone. And I didn't realise at the time, but there was a lot of um, bulimia and um, laxative abuse. Of course there was, because how else are people going to get to be that little? It's nuts. It's not talking about a fit, healthy, strong body. It's a frail, fragile little skeleton. Yeah, 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 yeah. We were, I mean, we were very, very thin. And you're talking about like sort of the, the level of fat that you have on your hands, you'd have on your stomach or your, your bicep. Wow. So after you weren't allowed in the team, what happened like after that? Did you come home? Did you have like issues going forward? Yeah, so I was offered counselling at that stage and because it was a very public event. It was the um, front page of the newspaper. It was the headline first thing on the news. So, um, you know, it was a, a very big event and I at that time chose, oh, no, I'm okay, this will only make me stronger. So that's the level of mindset that you have as we were trained to have is that you just get over it, you just move on. You don't connect to the pain, you just forget about it and move on. So that was um, my learnt way of dealing with things and I think it was also a reflection of um, family values and how they deal with things as well. Um, It was never, never dealt with. I left that career and um, changed schools uh, because I was training at uh, I was at a specific school close to uh, the stadium and so I changed schools and went on with my life and tried to integrate everything and that was a very difficult time for me because all I knew was to be a gymnast I didn't know anything else like I was training 30 to 35 hours a week on top of schooling so that was just that was everything like I didn't know anything else so to integrate that and trying to figure out who I was outside of being a gymnast was a struggle and I was doing this all on my own which I now know is a mistake and I then started to become quite ill and I don't know when it started but I do know that by the age of 22, I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia. For people that don't know what that is, it's chronic pain. And um, I was in immense pain that I couldn't get comfortable sleeping. My sleep was disrupted, um, but I was immensely tired, extremely tired. I had to quit my job that I was in because I couldn't sit at the computer. Um, I would have pain radiating from the head all the way down my neck, all the way down sciatic, all the way down to my heel, just all the way down my arm. I just completely flared up on my right side because I used to use the mouse on my right side. I now use my left hand because I had to teach myself to use the mouse on the left hand because I, I simply could not use my right arm for many, many years, 10 years. I, at that point, quit my job. I had some counselling within three sessions, I realised. He said to me, if you don't get on top of your health, it could cause cancer. And I went, okay, oh, it's time to time to quit. So I quit my job and then started to reflect and heal and I just needed a lot of time to heal. Um, I didn't rest for long and I decided to study naturopathy. It was something that I'd always wanted to do and yet I wasn't doing it. That was a point in my life that really changed direction a lot. That that was a very pivotal time and it made me head in a much better direction. 
And did you find that through doing your studies in naturopathy that you were using that to help heal your fibromyalgia at the same time? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So not only was I learning stuff about nutrition and herbs and what have you, but one, I was doing something that I absolutely loved, gave me joy, gave me a a reason to hop out of bed, gave me a reason to heal. Um, But I was also surrounded around people that were teaching me, like new people that I'd never um, been in contact with before. So you're learning a lot from other fellow friends because they're all going on their own journey. It was still a very difficult time. I was very sick, like um, not being able to sit in the chair for long periods of time. But I made made it through. Something like fibromyalgia I think is uh, a very difficult one for people to understand um both the person suffering with it but maybe even more so people outside of like you know your relatives and friends because they're like well you didn't have a fall you didn't have like anything happened to you that caused that but it's all of those I suppose that build up of things that happened earlier on in life the emotional stuff that's held into the body can you explain just to the listeners some of the theories around the causes of fibromyalgia yeah so i'll first um just say i totally agree with you um with what you're just saying and that was one of my biggest struggles through the whole thing was not feeling like anyone understood what i was going through people would ask you how how are you going and I would not be able to articulate it. And like it's, it's too much going on that you just do not have the words to articulate it in a sentence. So there was only one or two friends that really checked in with me all the time. And that was incredible. But at large, like just people had no idea what was going on for me. Didn't know why I couldn't stay out late or... I was acting strange or weird. Um, so, uh, yes, yeah, so to answer your question around um, what the causes are, in my opinion, it is just an absolute dysfunction of, of the body. So it's the body just breaking down. And we can view those signs and symptoms that you're experiencing as a way that the body's trying to communicate back to you to tell you something is amiss. So when, you know, it's a, it's a full body condition, it's not just the muscles. So the digestion is off, the mood's off, um, you might have anxiety or depression. You said your energy was impacted. Yes, very, very tired, um, very fatigued. You know, it the mitochondria, like if you to get down to the the biology, the mitochondria, the powerhouse of the cell is not functioning properly. So that impacts the detoxification. It impacts energy, of course, um, brain health. The mitochondria is really important for brain health. So you have complete brain fog, it's what they call it, um, which is when you can't actually recall things very clearly, like you just forget stuff. And like, so I would have a very good friend in front of me and I just couldn't remember their name. It's just disappeared. So you're trying to fumble your way through so many different things, trying to pretend that you've got your shit together and that like you can remember a good friend's name. You're just faking it. (laughs) Just faking it. And so the the role of stress in this is huge. Stress shuts down digestion um it impacts the blood sugar levels um and we'll talk about that a little bit later the the role of stress um but just in simplistic terms fibromyalgia is dysfunction major dysfunction going on the body yeah i mean if the body's constantly in pain it's got to be a sign something is not right something needs to be looked at deeper that's right and you know how do we find what the cause is for you specifically? Well, you know, it's a big deep dive into your life and um, doing a lot of work on yourself and getting support, getting help, like not doing it on your own. Because um, one of the biggest things I see with patients is that they try and do it on their own and they're like, 
oh yeah, that's me. I need to take that supplement. Oh, I'm experiencing that. I'm sure that can help me. And so they get really overwhelmed and they'll try something for a month and then they'll swap over and try something else and they're just getting completely overwhelmed. So what I do with patients is I set like a treatment plan and which is always changeable, but at least we've got a plan and we know where we're heading and we sort of do things in modules. So we might start working on the gut at the same time as we're working on decreasing that stress response. Um, then we might focus on really getting some lifestyle patterns in there that are going to help with the sleep and etc. But I think with fibromyalgia and any really chronic disease that the improvement is so slow and it's disheartening and that's why it's confusing on how to treat yourself because you feel like what you're doing isn't working. But trust me, it is. If you are doing the work, it's working. And I wonder if now in such this fast-paced lifestyle that we live and this thing of um, wanting everything now and right away, it, maybe it's even harder for people to deal with that or um, understand that a treatment doesn't mean you take one supplement for a month and it's going to be done and it's all fixed. And I think both you and me see that a lot in practice of people um, yeah, trying a whole realm of supplements but never really sticking with anything and getting themselves in a big muddly mess. How long for you did it take to heal from your fibro? Probably a good 10 years. There you go, people. <laughs> Not one month. <laughs> but you know what? The doctor told me that there was nothing I could do to heal myself and that I was prescribed antidepressants, sleeping tablets, um, painkillers. So, yes, you can be healed. You can. Um, you just got to believe. There's got to be a lot of hope and belief, persistence, um, because if you don't have that, that um, hope and belief behind it, you will lose. You will lose faith, mm. and you you won't do the yards that you need to to continue healing. Um, some people it might be shorter, but for me it was that long. And some people will take longer, <laughs> but you you need to start taking those steps um, and know that there there is a solution and there is a cause to why you are experiencing what you're experiencing do you find yourself constantly reaching for sugary foods it's no secret that eating too much sugar can wreak havoc on your gut health not only does it feed bad gut bacteria but it can also cause inflammation and damage to the gut lining Fatika Co's Gut Health Protocol is here to help. Our simple four-week reset program is designed to remove triggers and unwanted microbes, supporting you through your sugar hangover and repairing the gut. So why wait? Start feeling better today with Fatika Co's Gut Health Protocol. So let's move into the next stage of your life. <clears throat> so you had graduated as a naturopath. And you've managed to treat your fibromyalgia. You obviously met the love of your life. And I suppose this is the typical story of people getting married, finding their love and wanting to start a family. Had your fibromyalgia sort of been um, healed by the time that you had started thinking about having a baby? Uh, no, it was still, um, still there a little bit for sure. And I guess there was underlying dysfunction um, and probably still is, but as a whole, like I have incredible energy and I don't have that pain that keeps me awake all the time. Um, I'm probably susceptible to aches and pains, but it, I don't take any pain relief for pain. And like, to me, like it, it it's probably just a, a normal part of, um, my body feeding back to me now information. Yeah, so when I met my husband-to-be, I was still studying and he was studying and I knew that I, I wanted a family, always had wanted a family, um, but we just had stuff to complete. So when we got engaged, I started to do prep fertility work and, um, you know, just cleaning up my diet, making sure that was really um, good and um, looking at hormone balance. And I had 
I had in the back of my mind that I was um, going to have issues with fertility because uh, a previous long-term relationship, which um, I separated from, we had done with the withdrawal method and we had both discussed that if if we fall pregnant, that you know, it's a good thing, but it was never on the cards. We weren't planning a family. So I knew that... Um, with all the withdrawal methods um, that I had, you know, used and um, I, I hadn't fallen pregnant. So um, my the alarm bells were going off. But I started to do some fertility uh, investigation. So when um, we got married, uh, we immediately started to, to try. By about nine months, um, nothing had happened. So... Um, that's when we started to look down the the route of IVF um, or assisted fertility. Okay. And assisted fertility, can you explain what that is exactly? So I was doing just embryo, uh, the sperm was just being um, injected into the uterus. So um, you're just kind of bypassing the the cervix because the cervix can be an issue. Um with uh, stopping the sperm moving up the cervix or the immune systems uh, interfering. We did, um, I can't remember how many times we tried that, maybe three or six times or four, <laughs> but um, the that wasn't successful. And um, we were told to actually go to IVF straight away, but I, I wanted to try uh, something a little bit um, more natural. I wasn't really interested in taking all of the drugs if I didn't have to but um that didn't last for too long so yes that that's when we embarked on the the IVF which is where you are being injected with drugs to stimulate um many eggs those eggs get removed under general anesthetic or a light sedation and then the the sperm and the egg meet in a petri dish once it develops, it gets um, transferred back into the uterus. So that's that's IVF. And that process alone would be quite taxing on the body. A lot of hormones oh, <laughs> flying around. Oh, my God. Yeah, I, I actually dealt with the hormones quite well, but the anxiety around the unknown was really difficult. And for me, also navigating it around work, I didn't tell work that I was doing it. So... Not being, having to hide something all the time from your workspace was stressful in itself. And, um, yeah, it is one round of IVF. If anyone has ever done it knows how difficult it is. It's really, really um, full on and taxing. So I was I was already exhausted by the time I got to that first round of IVF because I'd already done those other transfers, which didn't uh, succeed. And... I remember the waiting for that phone call because you get a phone call to see whether your results, because you're having blood tests all the time, whether you're pregnant. And I was just so incredibly anxious getting that phone call, like, oh, my God. And so you're just waiting around for this phone call and you finally get it and I was told I was pregnant. Was this after the first round? This was after the first round, yeah. And so I don't remember anything she told me I was just like oh my god and um so yeah that was that was exciting it was I was like oh far out I'm so glad that this has worked out yeah everything was going fine and I was just exhausted really unusually tired um and I spoke to the uh, the girls at the IVF clinic and they didn't seem to think it was an issue um, but I literally, yeah, I just could not get through the day without sleeping all the time. So, um, as it turns out, um, I ended up losing that pregnancy at 13 weeks. So I was, I was quite far along and I'm thinking it was my thyroid. Okay. So you've obviously reflected back on, on that now. Yeah. Yeah. At the time. It wasn't being monitored, um, but I feel a pregnancy is a time when your thyroid can really shift. So, yes, that was um, 
huge for me, losing that pregnancy. It took me a very long time to get over that loss. And what did that time look like for you then? Were you just dealing with that loss, just you and your partner on your own because nobody knew or? Yeah, so work knew I was pregnant at that stage because I was so far along. Every Everyone knew that I was pregnant. Um, so it wasn't alone. Um, I had a lot of support, which was beautiful. And uh, my husband was so incredibly nurturing, which was beautiful. Um, but it was still a very difficult time, um, you know, when am I going to be pregnant? How much more can I take? This is this is so incredibly difficult. So um, we were advised to go through another egg collection. I had one other embryo. No, I think I had two other embryos. And we were told to get a, do another egg collection. I just thought there's absolutely no way I can do another egg collection. I'm just going to transfer what I've got. And it was a beautiful, perfect blastocyst, which is um, the stage of the embryo development. And what happened was I got the phone call to say I was pregnant, but I wasn't quite pregnant, that I just needed to see if it was going to develop further. And so that was very difficult time because I just had to keep going in for blood tests. Am I pregnant? Am I pregnant? The emotional roller coaster for you. Yeah, yeah. As it turns out, that um, pregnancy did not continue to develop. So that's called a chem- chemical pregnancy. It's when the pregnancy, it, the embryo attaches, but it falls away before it's termed as a, a pregnancy. That. That journey through my fertility, I could keep going on with stories. Like every round has an incredible story. Oh, my gosh. Um, there's heartbreak after heartbreak. How many rounds did you do? I think I did about seven. I mean, there was – I had a um, an embryonic pregnancy at one stage, and that is when the embryo – well, it doesn't turn into embryo. So the egg attaches, you create a placenta, you create a sac, but the baby's not growing. So I was all my um, hormone, pregnancy hormones were increasing, but I wasn't pregnant. There was no baby. So I had to make the decision to either terminate it or let it um, miscarry. That was a very, very difficult decision. Because you're like, what if they've misdiagnosed? What if this is not true? <laughs> so, um, so the very final round of IVF, we just said we're not going to do any more. This, this is it. This is literally the last time. And we, you get a phone call on the day to see whether you've got anything to transfer. And um, it was day three, and they ring up and said, uh, sorry. You've got nothing to transfer. So my husband and I were like, oh, far out. So we went out, enjoyed the day, talked about maybe what we're going to do in the future and decided to go down the pub for a drink. <laughs> and then we are up in Perth and we were just about to go home and we get a phone call from the clinic saying, your embryos <laughs> develop. <laughs> so that was the next day. So um, that's crazy. So they obviously leave it there in in case that happens. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So she just didn't clarify that on the phone, and I don't know why I didn't know because I should have known by. But it was just the way it came across, and my husband was exactly the same. Like we were just like, oh, okay. It's like, sorry, you've got nothing to transfer. And you guys had it in your mind that that was going to be it, it's the final round. Yeah, yeah. Then we get the transfer and then we the waiting game, see if we're pregnant. And, and yes, we became pregnant. Oh, that's the start of you and your journey with the next story. So tell us what you want with this one because this is um, not an easy story for you to tell. Yeah, so Bay was a beautiful, beautiful baby. She was, um, it was a beautiful pregnancy. Um, everything was 
perfect. Like I was extremely anxious around losing the pregnancy and I was all my um, antenatal care was all around avoiding a stillbirth. Like I was just petrified of a stillbirth. And, um, yeah, it was a very joyful pregnancy. She, she moved, she kicked, and I didn't really have any issues. I felt amazing. I felt alive. You looked amazing and you had that glow. Oh, and thank you. I do remember you looking absolutely beautiful. Oh, thank you. Yes. So, um, yeah, so Bay came um, a, a spontaneous uh, labour on week 40 of the pregnancy, so on her due date, which was tomorrow, um, 2017. Oh, wow. Oh, gosh. Yeah. And were you seeing a private midwife or did you have um, joint care with your doctor and the hospital? I was seeing a GP obstetrician. So a GP that's been trained in obstetrics. I brought my husband along with me to the first appointment, to the last appointment, because I just wanted to make sure we're covering off everything. Um, and I was birthing in the, in the local hospital. And approaching your 40 weeks, um, what were they saying to you? Were they wanting to induce or do anything like that? So I had never had a discussion about induction. Mm, that's interesting. Never had a discussion around um, C-section. There was none of that discussed through my care. So um, I had, like, a really good pregnancy and we were really sort of um, focused on, I was focused on, you know, where where should I be birthing? Because I wanted a home birth, but I wasn't confident that I was um, the right pregnancy to have a home birth. So, uh, you know, I was nutting it out with the doctor, where should I be birthing? Yeah, so it was the very final appointment that um, the GP obstetrician actually said, oh, well, we should be discussing um, induction. And we're like, oh, okay, well, that had never been discussed before, so it was a little bit of a shock. We had agreed that that's something that we can look at next week. Yeah, you weren't even at your due date, right? So what, what week were you, week eight, uh, 38, 39? Um, so that was um, 39 weeks. And it was also just a big shock because it had never been discussed before. Like it was just like, bam, all of a sudden they're talking about that. Like I really felt like um, that sort of thing needs to be discussed. Well, what happens if this happens or maybe we could have different options? Um, you know, we need to be thinking about what, what could happen. But that was never discussed. So um so I went into spontaneous labour on my due date. What time was this? Morning or night? Well, it started, I think the contractions started in the middle of the night and I wasn't really certain that I was in labour until around um, maybe 12, 2 o'clock in the day. Then it progressed really quickly. So, you know, we went, went into the hospital. How were you feeling on the day when you were going through your surges? Yeah, I... I don't know. I, I think I was just a little bit uncertain whether this was actually labour. I just didn't didn't realise it until much later. Yeah, I was just pottering, getting on with the day. And then, yeah, the contractions just got uh, too painful and too close together, so we, so we went to the hospital. And, um, yeah, that's that's when things started to go downhill. So there's only certain things that we can obviously – discuss here how long was the labor part uh, I went to hospital about 6 a.m and I was laboring until 12 so when I first came in there was very little interaction with me they didn't discuss my birth preferences and they didn't say anything to my husband but I did have a doula so I'm assuming that they discussed everything with the doula but nothing was really discussed with me so um you know, they checked um, Bay's heart rate and did my blood pressure. And um, I was being cared for for, um, for the first uh, three hours. And then there was a shift change of midwives. And 
that's when things changed and I didn't get looked after for three hours. And that's when they passed away. I'm so sorry. Can't even imagine that. Yeah, yeah. So you had three hours, you were sitting in there unmonitored. Correct. What happened after that? Did you birth her? Yes. So um, they, at the local hospital, they don't do stillbirths. Um, So I had to be transferred to uh, another hospital where they did. When I was in their care, the care was incredible. They guided us through everything, but... It's just I don't have the vocabulary to share and explain what the experience was like. It's um, absolutely harrowing. But I just remember just tears coming out of every orifice without crying. It was just like, I didn't know that you could just have tears just streaming out of your eyes. And it was just silence. It was just wet. Everything was wet. And just, yeah, just crying nonstop. And I was like, how am I going to get this baby out? Like you just want to leave your body. You just don't want to be experiencing this so we were guided we were guided through her birth and it was um beautiful it was a beautiful birth um she came out beautifully simply and um then I checked to see if she was a girl or a boy and um, she was laid on my chest and um yeah just holding her how did that feel holding her and knowing you had her for that moment? I remember feeling her little bottom on my hand and her just precious soft skin. And you just you just you just want to hear her cry. And where was your husband at that time? He was by my side, by my side the whole time and um yeah, family had come down. Um, in the middle of the night, my husband had to give my mother the news that her granddaughter had died. And it was, it's just been so incredibly hard on the whole family. You know, they had been on much of the journey with us to conceive her. And so when when she died, it was just extremely traumatic for everyone. After I'd birthed her and I was holding her, um, I just so wanted to see the placenta and the baby together as one. And um, because to me they are, that is part of the the child. And the uh, doctor and midwives were allowing uh, me to stay connected that way, but um, I was struggling to birth the placenta and um, we tried long enough and then um, I'm not sure if people know, but it's a very dangerous period of time that um, you can hemorrhage. And um, so they wanted to surgically remove it um, because it just was not coming out. And so I had to be separated from Bay. And that, um, yeah, it's quite a pivotal time to be separated because she was still warm, of course. And um, I had to go to surgery and I wasn't allowed anyone with me. It was in the operating theatre by myself. One overarching feeling that I experienced was this complete surrender. Like I had nothing else to do but to surrender and that was when I was just really looking out for support anywhere I could and um, one of the nurses had said to me, would you like me to come and hold your hand during the surgery? Um, I chose not to have general anaesthetic because that makes me feel very uh, 
nauseated and not well for a long period of time afterwards. So I had an epidural and I was um, awake, but I couldn't move my body from up to here. I was shaking because that's what happens when you have an epidural, um, a lot of an epidural, and also the combined um, hormones that were running through the stress, uh, adrenaline and cortisol. And so I had this nurse um, with me holding my hand and I had a team of about five or six people around me. And the irony is that once Bay had passed away, I had more people around me than at any other stage. You needed the support at that time, but you needed the support before. It wasn't until it was too late that they gave you the support. That's correct. And I think there is this really lack of continuity between your uh, prenatal care, what goes on in the hospital, and even after afterwards. There is so much improvement that is needed, so much improvement is needed for women. Everyone's different. I know some people feel really safe in a hospital, but to birth in those rooms, if you want an active birth, you know, you're walking around on concrete. <laughs> And I just wanted to be on my hands and knees. And, like, I didn't feel safe doing that on the bed. Like, I, so I was on the floor. And I had to ask for something, some a yoga mat to be on. That wasn't automatically brought to me. I mean, there was just holes in my care along everywhere along the way. And I know not everyone's experience is like that. But I know quite a few women speaking to them afterwards that... They just didn't get the care that they needed in that very vulnerable place. It's one, I think it is the most vulnerable time of your life, yep. giving birth. You're fully exposed. You have to surrender, like you said. You have to surrender your body because it's doing all these things naturally on its own and, yeah, you can't function in the same way that you would when you're not labouring. So it's a very vulnerable place to be. Yes, Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And the hormones, the pregnancy hormones um, leading really close to when you um, labour, they actually shut down that, um, I can't remember the exact process, but I do know that you don't start, to, you don't think as clearly. And um, when you're labouring, you're really, as you said, you're surrendering to the process. And that's part of the labouring, you're surrendering to the process. So you need that team of women or people around you that are going to just really care for you and read you and know what you need um, because there shouldn't be a lot of communication but there needs to be some. Yeah, if they can read you, I think that's the key to being able to know what you need without you asking for it. Mm, I just think that I would love to see midwifery and um, birthing care completely revolutionized and it needs it i know there's women screaming out and doing some incredible work around this it's not my job um i don't think who knows what my future is but i don't i think um it's something i'm very passionate about so i want to go back just a moment you said you had the nurse holding your hand as you were going through your procedure was your husband holding bay at this point yeah yeah so um he had some time with her and um, my mother and my other some other family members, but there was a point where I think everyone was quite exhausted and just needed to put her down. And um, we had some a a beautiful service come and offer to take some photos of her. I was recovering. I was sleeping after my surgery and after having not slept all night, um, I needed to sleep. And so when we'd woken up, she had been dressed and she um, some clothes were chosen for her and um, photos were taken. And these photos are the most precious photos and most valued photos. And I just often think about that intimate time that that photographer had with our daughter. Of course. She was dressing her, taking photos. And when did you name her? So we named her at some stage. I can't remember exactly. But um, 
they came, nurses came in and said, well, you know, what are you going to call your little girl? And I came up with one name. And then Adam's like, no, I want to call her Bay. And I'll never forget this moment because he had tears just streaming down his face saying, I want to call my little girl Bay. And you had a service for her too, didn't you? You had the, um, what do you call that, the swim out? Yeah. So that was um, that was a sprinkling of the ashes. Um, so that was a circle, um, a swim out. Um, so that was incredible. Um, but before with that, we had a private um, funeral. So we had the opportunity to um, bring Bay home with us. That was something that was very new to me. Um, but I highly recommend everyone, if you're ever in that situation um, of a loved one passing away, that you can actually bring them home so you can spend time with them. Yeah, we had her at home and I got to hold her a little bit more. But, you know, it's it's very different, of course. But I think it helps cement what's going on. And, um, yeah, so we had a private funeral and then uh, lots of friends um, spreading the ashes and that was an incredible um, moment because... When I lost Bay, it was a very spiritual event for me. It was, I would, I became very intuitive. Things flowed and I just did things out of intuition and I wrote a story. It had to do with Bay reincarnating as a whale. And so we decided to spread her ashes um, at Point PK and I'd never been to Point PK before I had given birth to Bay, and we were coming home from the hospital um, the very day that we'd left hospital without without Bay, uh, without our baby. And I was like, I just don't want to go home. And I thought, let's go to Bunker Bay. And then for some reason, something something higher guided me to Point PK. And it was the most serene moment because when you're in shock, everything is more vivid. Your eyesight, your hearing, everything is very stark. And so we were sitting there and it was just so incredibly beautiful. And somehow it's like your body, your brain somehow tries to start integrating everything that you've been through. And I was just like, I need to write a story. And I did. I went home. 40 minutes I nutted out, nutted out this um, beautiful story about Bay reincarnating. And so how this uh, relates to when we were spreading ashes was that um, during the ceremony we had whales launching out of the water. It was insane. There was just so much life there. We spent a lot of time in Point PK now, but there was so much life there. I've never seen that much life there. We had dolphins come through we had stingrays come through we had whales launching we got photos of it um we had rainbows um it was dead still flat dead still and as um we're all doing the paddle out this tiny set of waves came through out of the middle of nowhere she was there her energy was there her energy like she was there and like it's really hard to deny that there is something life after death or this that your spirit I don't know everyone deals with grief differently and some people don't have that um, spiritual experience it's got to do with um, where they're at I guess but for a lot of people it's a it's a real time for spiritual growth and it certainly has been the case for me I mean grief and loss we don't really talk a lot about it I don't think because it's hard maybe to talk about um we push it to a place because we don't want to even think or comprehend that we would have to go through something like that maybe that's why we don't and it's something that maybe not until it happens that we then have to try and work out how to deal with loss and grief and having no idea of how that would look physically as well, how the body just responds to it. What were you surprised by? Was there anything that you thought, I didn't know that this is how it would 
feel or be physiologically? As a student, I learnt the anatomy and physiology of the body and there was a lot of knowledge on what cortisol did. Cortisol was one of the most powerful hormones in the body and it's there to help you survive. And so when you have a stress response, it, it rises to help keep the organism alive. It impacts nearly every cell in the body. And I knew that, but I thought that shock was an emotional event. I thought that was like overwhelm. I don't know why, but I now know through living the experience that shock is a physiological event. And I think it's it's often forgotten that, that that's exactly what's going on. It's a it's a whole body experience. So when we've had trauma or when we've had shock, it's not an emotional experience. It's a full body experience. So I was experiencing uh, disruption of balance really severely and it's still my balance is not quite the same. My husband always laughs at me because he's like, oh, yeah, you used to be a gymnast, right? <laughs> Because my balance is just, I can't walk over the rocks without cutting, whoa. But I never i never used to be like that before the trauma. So it's still, I'm still, my body isn't still in alignment. So there's a lot more healing to occur. I, I came out in hives. So my immune system had been disrupted. My blood sugar levels had been imbalanced. Nervous system is just frail. Like, um... For me, it was a sense of just feeling really, like I just, very irritable. That was when I knew I had to pull back from what I was doing. But the very early days of my grief was, like, I don't even know how I got through it, to be honest, but really it's just taking one step at a time in really safe chunks. You just have to keep moving in, yeah, safe, in safe ways. Otherwise, it becomes too overwhelming and not thinking too far ahead in the future either because you're like, how am I going to get to where I want to be? And it's just too overwhelming. So you just have to stay in the moment. So minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day. And just hold a, a lot of compassion for yourself because you want to be anywhere else but where you are right now you just want to be out of your body because the pain is immense like it's a i describe it like a physical pain the grief is a physical pain and a lot of people didn't kind of get that yes but going to your question around grief and um, people don't know how to respond to it i think most people have experienced grief, whether it's the death of a pet or a grandparent, but not everyone's experienced the trauma that might come along with grief. So you've got two things merging together with some people. So the level of grief that someone experiences is going to have to do with how close they might be to that person, um, how reliant they are on that person, and you know, whether that person was expected to die um, or not expected to die. See, I thought I had a whole future ahead of me. I thought that I was going to be a mother. So my identity was lost at the same time as losing. So, you know, I think everyone's grief is different. You know, we certainly don't talk about it enough. And <clears throat> I can relate to a friend that lost her partner um, suddenly in a car accident and I was always uncertain about whether to ask her about how she was going. I just didn't know if that was the right thing to do. But I can tell you it is the right thing to do. We just need to get really inquisitive about people's lives and how they're feeling. Going back to that experience, spiritual experience that I had after I lost Bay, immediately 
I knew what life was about. It was strange. I don't know why I had this clarity. But to me, it was about community and connection. It was just like a knowing. I just knew that. And so I now try and take the time to just connect to the person who's putting the shopping through for me. And just really in simple ways, because I think we get so distracted about what life is really about. And we have the opportunity to hold so much more compassion than we do. And I think just that disconnect doesn't allow us to hold compassion for people either. So I had to really practice compassion for myself where I was at because I didn't want to be disabled from this grief, but I was. Um, So I just had to just be okay, be okay and just hold myself. Yeah, this has led me to, you know, on a huge uh, learning curve around grief and around trauma, around healing. So every time I've had these major traumas in my life, it's just up-leveled my knowledge. And everything I've done has been very intuitive. I spent a lot of time connecting to self, a lot of time in meditation, and I've really worked out ways that help move, shift energy. And they're the sorts of things that I talk about in my workshops and in my uh, retreats. Um, and I'll give these techniques to people, in, particularly in the wellness programs, when they're really committed to change. But I think in the future, when... I've really collated everything. I will probably uh, create some sort of program or book where I can actually get it out to a larger amount of people because I just wanted a manual for grieving. And people say that there's no right way to grieve and there isn't. Everyone's going to be different. But there are absolutely tools that can help you grieve correctly because I now believe that we have to go through these trials and tribulations and traumas correctly because I know that shutting off my trauma that I had in my gymnastics did not work for me. That created illness in my body and I just need to learn from those experiences And I'm just determined to work through Mm. all of these traumas and going right back to the start um, and dealing with that. So I'm on that journey now and um, I'm enjoying it. But, um, you know, it's a work in progress. I suppose for some people they feel maybe like the easiest way to deal with a trauma or a loss is to shut down because they just want to numb that pain that you were talking about, do you, do you find that by actually moving through it and working through it and doing deep dives in and getting in touch with yourself, was that a painful process in itself, but it meant that you were able to heal by going through that pain? Yeah. Yeah. So it's changed all the way through. So it's been five years since um, that, that loss Um, So what I needed to do on day one was very different to what I need to do now. So I meet my patients where they're at and really I feel like I'm quite good at gauging where they're at and what they need. Um, So in the beginning, all I could do, I was in a uh, what I now know as a free state. I didn't know that existed. Um, But at the time, I was sort of explaining to my uh, psychologist that I just felt like frozen, like I just couldn't do anything, like I couldn't do yoga. So my yoga was just laying there on the ground listening to music. I couldn't do anything more than that. And then it might have been six months or a year and I might have been able to do some stretches where you're laying on your back and just moving. To answer your question around feeling the emotions, what one practice that really helped me, this is something that I've created myself, was that I would sit down and actually just um, 
get connected to what I was feeling and then feel every single emotion that was coming up. Not about the actual event, but actually what my emotions are. Just doing lots of lots of crying. Um, some people might like to shout or um, hit things or whatever. That wasn't something I was overly comfortable with and it scared the dog. <laughs> so I would just cry. And what that did was that really freed me up to be able to then have a day without like this, like I was separating them. That allowed me to feel the sadness and feel joy. When you don't feel the sadness, you're merging everything all into one and it gets muddled. So you're not really feeling the joy, you're not really feeling the sadness. So you're sitting in between, which is a pretty shit place to be. My sign that I had to go and do that work would be just irritability. I would just feel uh, edgy and just awful. So I would sit down, do the crying and whatever, and that would just free me up. I'm just exploring that further now, and I am certain that this is one of the reasons why people are experiencing anxiety and depression. There's many different reasons why people experience these things. But when we can't experience our emotions fully, they they just merged into one. That's the easiest way to describe it. Um, so we need to feel comfortable in those awful, yucky feelings. We need to give time to feel them. Um, so I <clears throat> sort of put that challenge out to anyone that's listening now just to put aside time to... Um, and that's why I'm a big advocate of meditation because you're sitting sitting there and just feeling what's coming up for you. Um, but also one thing that I think is really important is actually just really connecting in and being a lot better at knowing what you need because if I just kept pushing through that irritability that I was feeling, you'd literally it would have a nervous breakdown because you're trying you're trying to push through something that is a sign from your body to tell you to step back and rest. So when I'm feeling, feeling that irritability, it might be, okay, today I'm doing nothing. Today I'm sitting on the couch reading a book. And that just allows your body to rest, your nervous system mm. to settle a little bit so then you can get up on with the day. So it's just been this juggling act um, with just trying to understand myself a little bit better so I knew when when was a good time to pull back. There's some really great tips and suggestions that you've got for other people who um, have maybe going through any form of trauma um, or loss or grief um, or general stress. So <laughs> thank you for sharing all of that with us and for sharing that big part of your story. We are going to move into your next stage. So we might have to break this podcast into part A, part B. So you haven't faced enough, apparently, that the universe wants to throw another curveball at you, challenge you a little bit more. You ended up being diagnosed with cancer. Thank you for listening to Unscripted with Alex. This show was brought to you by Batika Co. 